it shouldn't be too strange for us to understand that today, when we think about or even when we talk about America, naturally, we need to bring another country into the conversation, which is China. Well, given the fact the nation constitutes 1.4 billion people, and also China today is on this what we call unstoppable track for this economic agenda and also for these political ambitions. But here's an interesting question. When we think about China today, we tend to focus on the modernity of the country. And what about the history? And especially those unknown history that we might have heard before by pieces, but we never really get the chance to understand how this nation has transformed over the decades. And especially when we hear the word empirical or even the Chinese empire. How is it relevant today when we look at the modernity in China? And also, why is this still crucial? We need to study the Chinese history in order to understand the progress that this nation has made over the decades. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who is Professor Timothy Brook. Professor Brook is a historian of China whose work has focused on the Ming Dynasty but extends to issues that span the period from the Mongol occupation of China in the 13th century to the Japanese occupation of China in the 20th century. Again, if you follow Professor Brook's work, and he came out with this brand new book, which is called The Price of Collapse, The Little Ice Age and the Fall of Ming China. Well, Professor Brook, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me on your show. Well, Professor Brook, again, uh, I want to get started with a question. When we talk about China today, naturally, we're thinking about this economic agenda. We look at this political rival with the U.S. and even around the world. But meanwhile, I want to ask the question directly to your book, Ming Dynasty. I know that when we talk about the Ming Dynasty, as I mentioned in the intro, Correct me if I'm wrong, we tend to use the word empire, or I, I, be, I believe the word is empirical, a period. But but going back to the word empire, too often we think about the country of Great Britain. You know, that's what the country came to mind. But I know in your book, you distinguished those words when we say empire or empirical. So again, going back to the question, what is the definition for empire when we think about the Ming dynasty of China and also how did back in the days the Europeans think about the word empire for China go ahead well an empire is a political territory that extends beyond the original territory that a state controlled and um or well Starting in the 17th century, Europeans referred, uh, really about the coming of the, the Qing dynasty, Europeans referred to China as an empire. Before that, they called it a, uh, a monarchy. Mm. But they changed to the word empire because they began to get an understanding that China had expanded enormously over time and that China had claims to territories um, beyond the core region in which in which China had emerged in the North China Plain. Um, 
Now, I found the word empire a little bit difficult to use because it's so much associated with European history, the Roman Empire, mm. then, as you say, the British Empire, and people even today talk about the American Empire. Mm. And so in my own work in the last decade, I've moved to a term that was used at the time, and that's dagua, mm. great state. And a dagua, really, it's it's a Mongol concept. Ikulus um, is the Mongol term for it. It's a Mongol concept. And it's a concept that was coined in the time of, um, well, not coined, but it began to be used. The Mongols began to use it in the time of Genghis Khan. Because hmm. what Genghis Khan did, he, he, he unified the peoples that were known as Mongols at the time. Hmm. But then he went on and kept extending his political state across vast, vast regions. And for this new state, he needed a new term. So, and so the term Dagua, Iqulus, began to be used. And I find that this is important for Chinese history because occasionally we saw the term Da put in front of a dynasty name, in, in, particularly in the Tang and the Song. It, occasionally it comes up. Mm. But starting with the Yuan dynasty, when the Mongols controlled China, and then with the Ming and Qing, um, the term for the country is the Da Yuan, the Da Ming, the Da Qing, and this Da to me um, is uh, is this Da Gua, this sense of uh, what I what I've translated as a great state. So mm. it means that politically, since the Yuan Dynasty, China, the Chinese state has conceived of itself as to use the Western term, an imperial power that is mm. not just a power over its own territory but a power that had the capacity to build an empire and to go out beyond its own territories. And um, Genghis Khan was very specific about this. He said that, that heaven had, had endowed him with the right to extend his power as far as he could possibly take it. Mm. Now, when the book comes in, Zhu uh, Yuanzhang, who founds the Ming Dynasty, um, he's very much of that kind of, he has that sort of imagination that he is the inheritor. He thought Kublai Khan, for example, was the greatest ruler in Asian history, and he wanted to measure up to Kublai Khan. Mm. So he felt that he too was ruling a Dagua, and he uses this term in his own writings. And so the Ming for its first century, mostly, is very much in this imperialistic mode. Now, it all goes sour, in 1449, when the Zhongtong Emperor is captured by the Mongols, and all of a sudden China faces this massive constitutional crisis, the, mm. the, the emperor is captive elsewhere, and what are they going to do? And so from the mid-15th century, the Ming sort of pulls back from this kind of imperialistic mold and, mold and says, no, we have to define our borders, we have to protect our borders, stay inside our borders, we shouldn't go out, we shouldn't expand militarily onto the ocean or into Southeast Asia. And that lasts for the, the, the remaining period of the Ming Dynasty. And then the Manchus come in and the Qing, and they too are embracing the Mongol idea of the, of the great state. And for the Manchus, there's no limit, you just keep expanding mm. as far as you can, and the Manchus then turn Ming China, which was about this big, into Qing China, which is three times larger than Ming China. Mm. And um, to me, all of this is interesting, not just because it's, I think it's historically accurate, but because I think it shapes the way in which 
Chinese governments in the 20th and 21st centuries have viewed themselves. And um, they viewed themselves within this tradition of the great state. And so famously, China through the 20th and 21st century has tended to be act somewhat unilaterally in its foreign relations. Mm -hmm. That foreign relations are a matter of, of a bilateral negotiation that serves the interests of both parties. It's very much China wanting to establish itself, claim what it believes it deserves, and not re really worry about whether the other states involved are receiving um, their fair portion or, the, or their due respect. And <clears throat> I don't mean to say that, that, that the People's Republic of China is a great state quite in the Mongol vein, because mm. the, the People's Republic has to operate in the... Uh, in the system that has emerged um, since the founding of the United Nations, in which state boundaries have to be respected. And yet, nonetheless, there is a certain, <clears throat> how can I put it? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be in, um, impolite about this, but there mm. is a certain self-assurance and a sense that um, China should claim and can claim what is rightly what it sees as rightly belonging to it. Mm. And so that's why the People's Republic of China, ever since 1949, have had endless problems on their borders. Mm. Um, the border with India has been a difficulty. The border with Russia has been a difficulty from time to time. Um, the borders with Southeast Asia, the South China Sea, and, and all of that. And I think that the People's Republic's views on these issues are shaped by this long tradition of the great state that goes back to the period of the Yuan dynasty. Mm. Professor Brooke, I, again, briefly, you mentioned the person called Zhu Yanzhang. I mean, I know that in your book, you devoted significant amount of information and chapters about this person. Of course, I mean, there's no a secret that the ruler for the period, you know, Zhu Yanzhang, mm. I know even he declared what we call the Tianxia equal. Now, how should we understand the role of Zhu Yanzhang and what does that mean or how should we assess the interpretation that when he declared that Tianxia equal, what is the indication behind that? Does that mean, I mean, I guess to take one step further is when we talk about uh, equality or under heaven today, that means a sovereignty or that means human rights equality and that means a welfare uh, uh, again uh we'll say uh, equality of everyone so so from his mind you as a historian who was that person and what did he mean when he said tianxia equal go ahead well the the, the questions are asked you you are asking are exactly the questions that i think everyone is asking today um and it, it's it's hard to find clear answers because if we go back to the language of the 14th century, mm. it's pretty clear what he was saying then. But our concepts of the world, our concepts of political sovereignty are now so different from his. I mean, his view was that in 1368, he founded his his new great state. He had defeated the Mongols. He'd driven the Mongols out. And he, he made a lot, he made a big, a big fuss about mm. his success driving the Mongols out of China. And yet his political imagination was very much shaped by Mongol sovereignty. And this was something that he, he was trying to, in a sense, reproduce. Now, he was more cautious because he had fought a long civil war in order to come to power. 
Uh, he'd been fighting for 20 years before he became before he became emperor. So he, to his credit, he wasn't going to declare, okay, we're now going to go out and conquer the world. He wasn't going to do that. And he was a little bit more interested in, in, in strengthening boundaries than, say, any of the Yuan emperors were interested in. Uh, and yet at the same time, he didn't want to, he didn't want to accept any restrictions. So ultimately, all under heaven to translate Tianxia. And what that means is Tianxia is a difficult term. Sometimes mm. it uses, it's being used to, to declare what lies within the realm of a ruler. At other times, it's being used to, to state what is the entire world. And, um, so we can never get a clear translation of Tianxia. So we tend to use this, this expression all under heaven and, and, and it's vague and it, we, we, we kind of avoid uh, being too much, uh, do, uh, limiting ourselves by that. Mm. But I think in general, Jiyuan Zhang viewed Tianxia as that portion of the earth that was Chinese, mm. as the inheritors of the Mongol Empire, and that's the portion of the world under heaven that belonged to them. And he, here, here was a, a challenge for him because he, he kind of romanticized the Song Dynasty as a period he would love to have been able to go back to. But at the same time, he wanted to inherit the Mongol world that Kublai Khan had built. And that world was much larger mm. than the world that the Song had inhabited. The Song, I mean, the Mongol, the, the Chinese end of the Mongol Empire was, pro Empire was probably, what, two, three times larger than the Song Dynasty. So he, he kind of had to walk this careful line between reimagining China as China was, and yet at the same time, not, not abandoning anything that China could inherit because it had driven out the Mongol rulers and was now the successor regime to the Yuan dynasty. So he, he, he was in a difficult position, um, but Zhu Yuan Zhang was never, never one to feel timid about anything. So mm. he thought, okay, the Yuan was this, we are going to be that, at least that big. And in fact, you find Chinese writers all through the Ming dynasty saying, uh, going back to Zhu Yuan Zhang and saying he really he really re-established China in Chinese terms. Mm. Uh, and also that he created a China that was bigger than the Yuan China. And now it's not true, but that's what Zhu Yanzhang wanted people to believe. So um, so he kind of, Zhu Yanzhang kind of married the, uh, the Yuan heritage with the Song heritage in order to claim that the Ming was this large, powerful state that had authority over all of these regions that the Song could never have claimed authority over. You know, Professor Brook, to be honest, I remember when I was a student in the elementary school that when I was taught in class regarding the Ming Dynasty, and of course we're looking at the uh, Tang Dynasty, the Song Dynasty, but in comparison and contrast, as you were explaining about this person, it just came to me that I remember my Chinese teacher in school emphasized this so much, especially we link the word achievement and Zhu Yanzhang altogether. So in other words, he was not a diamond dozen. He was actually someone that he had a great ideal or even we say uh, um, ideologies in his mind and gradually 
turned not all of them, but some of the uh, thoughts and uh, um, ideals into actions. But again, I mean, he was significant and he really generated a lot of noises when he was yes. the ruler. Yes, well, his job as the first ruler of the dynasty was to consolidate his family's rule mm. over China. It was his son, Yongle, who he's the one who really picks up the, the Mongol style of great state. And he invades Vietnam and he sends forces up to, the, to try and push the Mongols back and sends diplomatic missions into the Indian Ocean. Mm. And Yongle was really a Mongol-style ruler. He imagined himself. But that's because his his father had consolidated this powerful realm. Now, of course, he wasn't supposed to inherit it. His, his father had put a grandson on the throne, but um, uh, there was a civil war and a coup, and Yungla took over, and he thought, I'm going to be the most powerful emperor of all. And so he, he, was, he was a very expansive, imperialistic right. uh, person. Who also uh, almost drove the country into financial ruin mm. because he rebuilt the canal, he built a new city in Beijing, he built the Forbidden City in Beijing, he sent those uh, the, uh, the 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 diplomatic uh, missions to Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean. Those cost a huge amount of money, and in fact, the amount of uh, by one estimate, the amount of wood that it took to build all those ships denuded the province of Fujian and mm. just stripped Fujian of all the trees in order to build all those ships to go off into the Indian Ocean. And while this is this may be great politically, it's not so great financially. Right. So the country through the rest of the 15th century is sort of um, is not on strong ground. And this is when the Mongols invade, uh, capture the Zhongtong Emperor, hold him hostage. Um, so it's a difficult period for China. Then the story starts to change when we get to the beginning of the 16th century, because this is when the first Europeans sail into Chinese waters. And it's not that the Europeans changed anything, but they brought economic opportunities and posed political threats that really forced the Ming government to have to think very carefully, what are we doing? What should our foreign policies be? And... Um, the traditionalists in the Ming government said, we really don't want to have anything to do with these Europeans. We don't trust them. We don't know who they are. We don't know what they believe. Um, and yet many Chinese, particularly in Fujian and Guangdong, saw trade opportunities like they'd never seen before. So there, there is a real tension through the 16th century between Beijing that wants to really kind of control the borders and South China that wants to open them up and mm. just let trade happen because it's it's a source of great wealth. And in fact, a few really prominent uh, thinkers of the late 16th century are writing writing essays saying, let the people of Fujian and Guangdong make money. Mm. Let, let them go do the trade. It's not going to be a threat to um, to, to the sovereignty or the strength of, of the Ming. And people in Beijing were usually not very sympathetic to that. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then everything starts to shift. And this is what I write about in my most recent book, The Price of Collapse. Everything starts to shift when the Little Ice Age starts to pressure China in new and, and sometimes terrible ways, starting mm. in the 1580s 
and going right through to the 1640s. China during this period is facing droughts, um, sometimes floods, famines, um, pandemics, and cold temperatures that are, are limiting the economic capacity mm. of the Chinese people. And so China all of a sudden just, I mean, the West is arriving, Japan is becoming stronger, um, the Mongols are attempting to regroup, the Manchus are beginning to emerge. All of this is happening at a time when China is suddenly facing environmental challenges mm. on a scale that it's never had to face before. And this this then becomes the, the chaos that is the late Ming. And as a, as a student, when I first began studying Chinese history, at, and this was at Fudan University in Shanghai, I... I I thought, wow, the 16th and 17th centuries are the most, for me, the most interesting centuries in Chinese history, because this is when everything is, is everything is up in the air. Mm. Questions are being asked. Um, new, new solutions have to be found. It's a very creative and interesting period. And so that's why I became a historian of the Ming Dynasty. And um, I had many, many friends who were studying the Qing, and that's fine. I let other people study the Qing, <laughs> and I would study the Ming. And uh, I, I certainly never regretted that decision because the Ming, the late Ming period is really one of the most fascinating eras of Chinese history. And again, Professor Brook, I agree with you 100%. Now, two more questions before letting you go. Now, I want to yeah. talk about, I mean, again, you touch on the topic on trade and also, of course, the business economic uh, economic opportunities. But related to that, in your book, you also mentioned and related to what we call today the maritime traffic. I mean, again, yes. we are looking at, I guess, say in the twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four, maritime disputes are not going anywhere. I mean, today clearly China. It's facing some major struggles. We're looking at this territorial dispute on the ocean, you know, with other countries. Again, conflict, as you mentioned before, Professor. Now, help us with better understanding. The maritime traffic was rather crucial and critical during the Ming Dynasty. But also, I guess it, it was the defining period or it was the defining moments for China, again, again, correct me if I'm wrong, start to realize or even start to wake up to say, hey, we need to do something about this because this is an opportunity. But meanwhile, we need to protect our own territory without being invaded or without being taken away. So I guess the question uh, yes, very simple. That's exactly the tension. The maritime world is opening up and yet at the same time, the political authorities are concerned about, about their control over mm. their own territory. Um, 50 years ago, nobody thought about maritime China during the Ming period. And then we started, it was, a, it was, it was partly the result of historians who were looking at the export of, a, of South American silver across the Pacific to the Philippines in order to trade with China. It's the beginning of a fairly powerful trading network that drew China into global trade. Mm. Um, now the middle chapter of, in the middle chapter of the, the book, I talk about this because uh, because one of the arguments for the rising prices at the end of the Ming, which is the focus of the book, is foreign trade. And I, I tend not to think so because the scale of foreign trade was growing, but it was not enough to overwhelm the Chinese economy. So I think we've tended to maybe 
overemphasized the importance of maritime trade. And yet it was very important because, um, uh, and, the, and, and the interesting thing is that the Chinese government, the Ming government didn't really want to have anything to do with this, but the people who were getting involved were becoming very wealthy. So private Chinese businessmen during the Ming period, they're the ones who are building the financial ties mm. that are linking the Chinese economy to the world economy. And it's certainly fascinating from a Western point of view, because this is when Chinese porcelains, Chinese silks, Chinese furniture, mm. all of these materials start to be um, exported, brought to Europe. And um, Europeans begin to imagine China in a way that they've never been able to imagine it before. Now, this is, the Chinese, the Ming government isn't doing anything to, to, for this. It's, this is being done by, by private businessmen. At the same time as things going abroad, uh, European intellectuals in the form of the Jesuit missionaries were starting to come to China. They were, they were developing friendships with Chinese intellectuals. They were sharing with them knowledge of the outside world that begins to have quite a revolutionary effect on, on, on the Chinese intellectual world. Mm. So this is all part of this, this great um, uh, turmoil and, and, and these new beginnings that were happening during the late May that I have found so interesting. But in my book, I, 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 I don't have good economic data for this, but my sense is that foreign trade did bring a lot of silver into China, mm. but it was carried by the, by the super rich. Mm. So the super rich got even more super rich, um, but the money didn't really go out into the economy to change things very much. And the biggest, the biggest market, uh, the market that was most changed by the influx of silver, I think, was probably the art market, because that's a place where, um, where the rich found that that was not a bad place to store your wealth, store it in artworks. And in that way, the 21st century and the 17th century are not all that different. Indeed. Professor, I want to ask you the last question. Again, going back to the title of your book, The Price of Collapse, The Little Ice Age and the Fall of Ming China. Now, again, you're the expert and you're the historian. Now, when we talk about China, as we mentioned in the intro, today, referring to this political agenda, this economic amb ambition, you know, even this technological competition internally, of course, even internationally. But for anyone that who's not familiar with the Ming Dynasty and who are um, eager to discover more about the Ming Dynasty throughout your book, what would you back? Uh, what would you expect the readers to understand when they finish reading the last chapter of your book? So, what are your expectations for the readers that who knows little or maybe who knows nothing about Ming Dynasty? What will be the great takeaway from this? Well, I'm going to give you two takeaways. One is that history is often written from a kind of moralistic point of view. Mm. And so in the Qing dynasty, the story of the Ming was that they were morally corrupt and decadent and not they, they, they weren't working hard enough to keep the dynasty alive. And by bringing in the Little Ice Age and environmental collapse, um, I'm trying to show that whatever the narrative is, whatever narrative is being sold, it's probably not the full story. Mm -hmm. And you need to widen your view and bring more in. The other takeaway would be that um, 
States often run into crises, not because of bad leadership or poor administration, but because of environmental stress. Mm. And we it's only in the last couple of decades that we're beginning to recognize the importance of environmental stress. And I would have to say that China in 2024 is facing some enormous environmental challenges mm. that, um, that in the end, perhaps they're driving some of their foreign policies in ways that are not being publicly acknowledged, but, but that are still there, you know, the ability to control the right amount of um, carbon fuels to to uh, control the the right minerals that are needed for manufacturing. Um, water is a particular problem for China. Um, the, many parts of the world are drying up. China is one of those parts, and so the control of water is an environmental challenge that that the People's Republic faces today. Um, hence, the vigilance in the western part of China in order to control the sources sources of water. So um, so I, I guess uh, there are so for those two things. One, if there is a formal narrative of why we're in trouble, that narrative is probably excluding things that need to be included. And secondly, that we can't leave environmental pressures out of our calculations, that those are going to shape how well a state flourishes or does not flourish um, going into the future. Well, um, and to that, I can, I, I can also add that um, every, every culture and every state tries to find ways to be resilient in the face of environmental challenges, but sometimes those challenges are just too big. I agree with you, Professor. Again, as I continue to read your book and continue to discover more unknown facts and historical, uh, well, I guess what we call relevancy to what's happening today in China and also outside China. But I also agree that histories they tend to serve as a mechanism to remind us that how far this country has come and also how far this country still needs to go. Well, again, this is a wonderful book and I strongly encourage everyone to uh, check out Professor Timothy Brooks' new book. It's called The Price of Collapse, The Little Ice Age, and The Fall of Ming China. Well, Professor, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. We'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to talk about, not just about the history of China, and also about the progress this nation has made over the years. So, so thank you so much for doing this. <laughs>